I'd like to begin this morning with a riddle. You've got to solve it. Here it goes. I can fly, but I have no wings. I can crawl without hands or legs. I am harmless, but I can kill you. I have no mass, but I can cut canyons out of mountains. I am free, but priceless. I can be owed, but I can be, I I said, I can't be owed, but I can be used. I can't be kept, but I can be spent. I change people's appearance without surgery. And once you've lost me, you can never get me back. What am I? Yes, thank you. I am time. Yes, I am time. Let's hear it again. I can fly. Time flies, but I have no wings. I can crawl. Time crawls, but I have no hands or legs. I'm harmless, but I can kill you. I have no mass, and yet over time, canyons are cut out of mountains. I'm free, because you can't put a price on me. I can be owed. I can't be owed. Owned, rather, but I can be used. I can't be kept, but I can be spent. I change people's appearance without surgery. (laughs) How come we got that one? (laughs) And once you've lost me, you can never get me back. I'm time. The brevity of time is um, uh, something that we find in literature everywhere in the world. Shelley says, speaks of time as a fleeting river. And Tennyson tells us that time driveth onward fast. Ben Franklin said, time is the stuff life is made of. We waste time. We spend time. We save time. We have time on our hands and we make up for lost time. We speak of those who have all the time in the world while others are running out of time. And then, when our time is up, we exit this world. The Bible speaks a lot about time, and time is actually going to be the topic we're going to talk about mainly today. But in our text of Scripture, which as you can see here is Romans 13, 8 to 14, the Apostle Paul, who writes this to the Roman people, the capital city of the world, He's going to basically ask two questions, and the questions are very important. The first question is, how much do I owe you? Not God, you. How much do I owe you, the people who are here today? Second question is, what time is it? If you look at my watch, it says it's 1045, but God has another time clock. It's a little bit different than ours, but it's far more important. And though we are constantly looking at our watches to figure out what time it is, there's another clock that's ticking that's way, 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 way more important, to which we are usually oblivious. And it's that clock we want to focus our attention on today. But first, the first question, which is, how much do I owe you? That's the question. And this is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 12. Now, um, we, we learned already from our children this morning that we Americans are, we like debt. In fact, we are the society of people that likes debt more than any other people who have ever lived on the face of the planet. How do I know that? 
Well, I went online this week and tried to find our national debt. It goes by so quickly you can't figure it out, but this is what I figured out. As of September 30th, a couple days ago, our national debt stands at $28.8 trillion and going up fast. In fact, it's about ready to go way up again, I think. And do you know what that means? That means if each of us went home today and we took $86,000 out of our savings accounts, as if you have that, every single man, every woman, every child, we took out $86,000 and we freely and graciously gave it to our national government, we'd be out of debt. Okay, you're going to go do that today? No, of course not. But we, we love debt. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker once says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Um, which, of course, is how we live our lives. Because we have debt for our houses and debt for our cars and debt on our credit cards and debt for our college loans and debt for everything. We're a society that loves debt. But there's a kind of debt we should love that we don't. And that's the one the Apostle Paul is going to address here. Now, by the way, he just finished in the previous verse, verse 7, he said, give everyone what you owe him. And now in verse 8, he's going to say, here's a debt you have, but you can't pay it off. Just like the national debt. This is an American passage, by the way. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Biblical love is a debt we have that we can never fully pay. Why? Because we have been the recipients of an everlasting, costly, incredible, gracious love of Christ that we can never pay back. We got a hint of that even from our children this morning. We can never pay back the debt of love based on what we have been given by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. We can never pay it back. But the way God asks us to pay that back is to love the Lord our God and to love our fellow human being. That's how he says it. How do I know that? Well, that's the next verses. Because people might say, okay, you say that I have a debt I can never pay. That's the debt to love one another. And here's what he says. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. That's an aspect of love. You shall not murder. That's, of course, love. You shall not steal. That's love. You shall not covet. Even in your mind, you don't want someone or something that is not yours, your own. And whatever other command there may be are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the debt that we can never pay off. And if you could do this, here's the next verse. It says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, we, a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the subject of love. And we talked about what it is because love is often terribly misdefined. Um, this morning, I was looking at a definition of love from Tony Evans. He's a pastor in the Dallas area. I liked his definition. He said this, Biblical love is the decision to compassionately and righteously seek the benefit and the well-being of another. Because remember, love without truth isn't love. 
Love based without moral groundings or ethics is not love. Biblical love is the decision to compassionately and righteously seek the benefit and well-being of another. There is a debt we can never pay. Why? Because we have been loved by one who's eternal, who gave us everything, none of which we deserved. In fact, we deserve the opposite. And with unconditional love, he has given to us salvation and many gifts. And so we can never pay it back. But the way we try to do it, because even if you have a mortgage like the United States has, that we can never pay back, you can't just give up on it. And so our pay repayment of the love of God and Christ for us is by loving one another. That's how we pay it back. Now, I need to address a problem that comes out of this verse. And the verse, um, as you can say, as you can see, it says, let no debt remain outstanding. Now, I don't know about you, but there are people, famous people, who when they read, read the verses I just read to you, let no debt remain outstanding, they said, that means you should never, ever take on any debt. You might think, well, who would say that? Well, the likes of um, Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in human history, or um, Hudson Taylor, the, one of the greatest missionaries in human history. They both took that verse and said, this verse tells us from God's word that we should not ever have any debt. So your mortgage on your house is wrong. That what you pay on your car is wrong. Those credit card debts you should not have, et cetera, et cetera. I would like to stop for a few minutes and tell you why these great preachers, Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon, are wrong. It's important that we see that, oh, in many, many things, they're, they're wonderfully right. But in taking this verse to say you should have no debt, they are clearly wrong. You might say, Tom, how do you have the audacity to tell people like this that are so much greater than I am that they're wrong? Well, here's how I can. One of the things as Christians we need to be very careful about is that we interpret the Bible correctly. And there's certain ways that we, things we must keep in mind when we interpret the Bible, lest we misinterpret it. And let me tell you what some of those are. The first one is context. You can never strip a, a phrase out of the Bible away from its context and say, this is what God says. Let there be no debt. That's what it says. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about clearly something quite different here. The normal reading of this text is God is not prohibiting us from borrowing money. What he is demanding is that you need to pay back any debts that you have, except here is a debt you can never pay back, namely the debt to love one another. So the first thing you need to consider with any passage of scripture is what does it mean in its context? That's the first thing. But secondly, another principle is the principle of comparing scripture with scripture. We believe that though the Bible is written by many, many different authors over a period of time, some 1,500 years, we believe it has one author, 
That one author is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One author. And if it is one author, that one author is a, is a God who cannot lie, whose very name is truth. So it must be consistent from start to finish because it has only one author. And so you cannot strip a passage of scripture out of its context that does not agree with the rest of the Bible and say this comes from God. You must compare scripture with scripture. And when you do so, you will find that in both the Old and the New Testament, it does not forbid borrowing. It does not do that at all. In fact, there are many passages about the, 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 in the Bible about borrowing and lending. For example, um, one of the laws in the Old Testament was a law against usury. Usury is charging people interest when they come to you and are desperate for a loan. Uh, this happened to me. There was a, a woman in our church in Longmont who was a widow, and she got behind financially. And so she went to one of those places that gives um, loans that you find on main streets all over. And she, I remember, took out a loan for $400. And then it was a good deal due the next month, and she couldn't pay it. So she came to me and said, what do I do? Well, she showed me the paper that described the loan that she had taken out of $400. And in the corner of that paper, it had by law to list the percentage of interest she was being charged. Do you know what that number was? Would you please like to guess? Throw out some numbers for me. Pardon? 50%. That's a bad number. Give me some better ones than that. 25%. Come on. What? 75. What? <laughs> 300 is the answer. 300. Myron, how did you know? Yeah. Over 300%. God's word said, no, no, here's a, what happens with that? You are in debt for the rest of your life for taking out a $400 loan. You have put a person into slavery for the rest of their life. It's, it's, it's almost 400% is the correct number. And that's legal in our country. That's horrible. God says, no, you cannot do that to a poor person. That's the laws against usury. Additionally, in the Old Testament, our God set up a scheme that for the Jewish people, every seven years, guess what happened to debts? All debts were canceled. Why did God do that? Because God did not want anyone in perpetual poverty. That's from our God himself. There are many things. He canceled debts on the, uh, the sabbatical year. And besides... A third reason is if you want to interpret the Bible properly, not only do you have to look at the context and compare scripture with scripture, but of course we should pay attention to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus said. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's Jesus. I guess he didn't have a problem with that or he would have said something against that, but he didn't. And besides, in a real world in which we live, and God's word addresses the real world, not a fictitious world, people got into financial problems. And that 
is, is one of the things that God put into his law, ways that people who got into financial problems could get out of it without spending the rest of their life in financial slavery, which is what it was. Now, the Bible does give us principles about debt, and there's, you should probably listen to these. Number one, if you take on a debt, pay it back. That's a biblical principle. Secondly, debt is like slavery. So acquire it carefully, very carefully. Thirdly, do not take advantage of a poor person by over-indebting them. Don't do that. And a fourth one, God made a way for debts to be canceled. That's, and by the way, our bankruptcy laws, some of those are based on the principles from the Bible. God made a way. Those come from God. Why? Because God cares about the poor people a lot. So there's a debt that I carry with me every day of my life. It's a good debt. It's a debt that that was placed on me because I am the recipient of the love of God through Jesus Christ. That debt is to love one another. That's my debt. So that's a debt we can't get rid of. It's something we always owe. But then the Apostle Paul is going to turn to the second question. Not how much do I owe you, but now what time is it? Well, if I look at my watch right now, it says 11 o'clock. And uh, we're going to see what time God says it is. But first of all, let me start with this morning. I suspect that you did this morning exactly what I did. Or maybe close. Here's the thing I did. The first thing I did this morning was I looked at my clock because it went off at six o'clock. My alarm went off at six o'clock and I looked at it and it says, sure enough, six o'clock. And I went and turned off my alarm. That's the first thing I did this morning. As soon as I turned off my alarm, I did the second thing. And I'll bet you did the same. You turn on the lights because It was dark this morning at six o'clock when I got up. The house was dark. So after turning off the clock, looking at the clock, I turned on the lights. And then this one's pretty appropriate, as you all know. I put on my clothes, which, of course, is a good idea for all of us to do. So that's what I did. I looked at the clock. I turned on the lights and I put on my clothes. Guess what? That's exactly what God says we're supposed to do every day, but not physically, spiritually, the same thing. You'll see all three of them exactly in that order. Let's look at the word of God. Verse 11, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It actually, understanding the present time, um, that simply means understanding what time it is. Now, in that society into which this was written, they didn't have clocks. They got up by the sun. So when the sun came up, you got up. For you to stay in bed after the sun came up, that meant you're a slacker. It says, don't be a slacker. When the sun comes up, when your alarm gets up, get out of bed. Why? Because the time has come for a new day to start. And then it says, what is the time? Well, my salvation is nearer now than it was when I went to bed last night. So what time is it? Well, 
It's the time for me to, to be who God has created me to be this hour of my life. Now, did you notice that? Um, um, in the previous verse, it, it says, for, for our salvation is closer now than it was when we first believed. And you wait, wait a minute. I thought I was already saved. Well, to be theologically accurate, if someone asks you, are you saved? Here is the correct answer. I was saved. I am being saved. And one day I hope to be saved. That's the correct answer biblically. If you say, I am saved, you're only saying one third of what the Bible says. When you say, I, I, I have been saved, that's called justification. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Bible says that God declares us to be righteous in his sight. That's past tense. But as you know, we all wrestle big time with sin every single day. So we're now in the process of being saved. That's called sanctification. But it's not over until it's over. One day, this battle that we all face against sin is going to be over. And that is the day when we are given a resurrection body, and that's called glorification. But we're not there yet. So are we saved? Well, no, I'm not saved yet. I've not been glorified. Are you saved? Well, I am being saved right now. God is changing me. Are you saved? Well, yes, I was saved when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. So you see, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, but it's not there yet. We have not been glorified yet. It's still, we're in the time of time right now. Ironically, we, we Americans, on the one hand, are so incredibly time conscious. But on the other hand, we are the most oblivious of all cultures to God's time. How, how often do you as an American, or do I as an American, think you know, I, I don't know if I have tomorrow. I have this day, only this day, to serve my master. That's how we're supposed to look at time, but we typically do not. In fact, Seneca wrote this. It is not that we have little time, but that we waste a good deal of it. We know that's true. So, the first thing you do each day is you look at the clock. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later now. When God says, when you look at the clock, what do you see? Where are we? And we'll come back. Well, the second thing you do is you turn on the lights. And God says, after you figure out what time it is, turn on the lights. And here's what he says. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. So the second thing God says, once you realize what time it is and how precious time is and how you, your life is in the process of being ultimately saved by God, then you need to turn on the lights. And when you turn on the lights, you as a Christian, when you turn on the lights, you begin, what did it say? Go back, um, the, the previous verse. When you turn on the lights, what will you encounter? Where do you wear armor? 
What? In a battle, of course. Once you turn on the lights, you go into a battle. That's what we do. So we are now, as human beings, as Christians, once we turn on the lights, we enter a battle. That's what it says. It says, put on armor of light. You see, we as, as Christians are living in a world right now where we are fighting a battle. There are superpowers against us. Our default modes are to conform to our world, to appeal to our flesh, because we are being, all of those are being promoted by Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so when we turn on the lights, the first thing we do is we realize we are in a battle. And so what do you do? You put on your clothes. And in this case, of course, you put on your armor. Rather, rather than these deeds of darkness, put those off, put on, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. The Bible says, okay, as a Christian, now you need to dress for success. I remember when I first got married some 42 years ago, my father-in-law had just read a book called Dress for Success. Have you heard of it? And so he bought me two suits. <laughs> he wanted to make sure I took care of his daughter. And so I better be sure I dress appropriately. So I was given two suits because he believed I had to dress for success. Well, I'm here to tell you that we are supposed to dress for spiritual success. How do you do it? Well, let's look at the Bible. What does it say? How do you dress for success biblically? It's very simple. It says, put off your old self and put on your new self. That comes from Ephesians 4. Put off what Christ saved you from and put on following Jesus. Then it says, put off falsehood and put on speaking truth. Put that off and put the other one on. Put put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, etc. Put those on. Then it says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then it says in Colossians 3, clothe yourself with, this is what we're supposed to put on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love, and the peace of Christ. Then it says in 1 Thessalonians, put on faith, put on love, put on hope. And then at James, it says, take off the clothes of moral filth. That's what God says, put off and put on. I don't know about you. When I was growing up, we had three, three kinds of clothes. We had very few clothes next to what we have today. We had our play clothes. We had our school clothes. And we had our church clothes. And so God says, Put on your, your best clothes, who you really are. So when you start your day, first of all, consider, think about what time is it? And then turn on the lights and then clothe yourself basically with Jesus Christ. Well, from this passage and other passages, I'd just like to summarize a little bit of what the Bible says about time. So if you look at your watch, mine says 1111 right now. Well, what does the Bible say about time? First of all, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit are beyond time. They're eternal. 
beyond space and time. This is Psalm 90, the, probably the most important psalm in the Bible on the subject of time. Psalm 90, written by Moses. This is what he wrote. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is eternal past, eternal future. He has no beginning or end. God is timeless. Second thing is, God, though he is eternal, he has chosen to enter space and time. Listen to these incredible words from John, Jesus' best friend. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, the Word, is eternal. Then it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. So God chose to enter time and space in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God's reckoning of time and ours are not the same. They're remarkably different. How do I know that? The great Abraham was promised by God that his family would bless every single person on the face of the earth. But then God said this to him. He says, hey, but I got a little catch for you, Abraham. You're presently in this land called Canaan that's occupied by the Canaanites. And guess what? These Canaanites are just evil people. But I'm so patient with evil people that I'm going to give them 400 more years of my grace. And you know who's going to have to pay for those 400 years? You, Abraham, and your family. They are going to be slaves for 400 years because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. You see, God does not lower his hand of judgment quickly. He made his own people become slaves for 400 years because he was not ready to judge the Canaanites yet. What? That's longer than our whole history as a nation. God waited 13 years and let Joseph languish in a prison before he brought him out and eventually to the prime ministership of the nation of Israel. Jesus, God in human flesh, spent 90% of his life on planet Earth in total obscurity. No one on Earth except for his mother maybe knew who he was. Come on, Jesus. You could have been turning water into wine when you were three. Why wait till you're 30? You could have been healing people, raising the dead when you were four. No. What kind of sense of time does God have? Here's God's sense of time. Peter tells us. Here's what he wrote. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God end it all? Long time ago. Because he wants to get as many people into heaven as possible. So with God, a day is as a thousand years to us. And a thousand years for God is as a day. But God has provided for us timetable, a timetable, markers, so that we can know what time it is. 
Time began when God created the heavens and the earth, and then we blew it with the, with, with the, the fall. And then God gave a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he would bless the whole world through their family. And then he, he, he brought this group of chosen people into the promised land and gave them a monarchy under the great King David, one who truly followed God, but they blew it then again. It's a marker. And then, of course, they went into exile and God brought them back into the promised land. And then there was a period of time that God had no prophets. And then in the fullness of time, when the time was absolutely perfect, God brought forth his son, the greatest marker in the history of the world. The marker from which we changed from B.C. to A.D., before Christ and the year of our Lord. That's the great marker. But since then, We've been in the midst of what is called the church age. Now, 2,000 years in length. But to God, two days. That's all. And we say, hey, where, where's the second coming, which we're looking forward to? And God says, oh, I'm only on day two. We say, no, no, 2,000. So, but at some point, there's one being in the whole cosmos, only one, who is worthy to bring about the end. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will start opening some seals. And he will unroll the final chapter in human history. It will begin with God raising up his, taking his people. That's called the rapture. And then all hell will break out loose on planet earth. And out of hell, God would bring many people to heaven. In the middle of that time, all hell would become more hellish than ever. It's called the abomination of desolation. And finally, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth and he will establish a thousand year reign on this earth. And then a new heaven and a new earth. You see, God has a timetable in mind. And where are we in this timetable? Not 1118. We are in what the Bible calls the last days or Jesus called the birth pangs, that's what he called it. We know we're there because the birth pangs or the last days are the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And what will those last days be like? Well, 2 Timothy tells us, Paul writes us, he said, they will be the days in which our love is misdirected. Instead of loving one another and loving God, we will love ourselves, we will love money, we will love evil, we will love pleasure, and we will not love God. But worse... He says, in the last day, religion will become impotent. We will say, oh, we love God. We love God. But it will tell, do nothing to change our lives at all. And in the last days, Peter tells us that there will be scoffers that will multiply. And Jesus tells us that there will be many antichrists that will deceive many people. But at some point, all of that will come to an end with the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes back again, oh, there's God has a plan in time. He's given us just little hints throughout the scriptures as to the markers in those times. The best I know and can understand Holy Scripture, we're in the last days. We're in the birth pangs. And the next event on the calendar is the return of Jesus. And when will that be? I'll tell you. I don't have a clue. And if anyone tells you they know, you know they're a false prophet. 
Tim McGraw, the country singer, he popularized a song and it was entitled Live Like You Were Dying. And he wrote it because oh, he didn't write it. Actually, some other people wrote it because someone came down with cancer that was unexpected. And he said, what if you lived like you were dying? This is what he said. I don't agree with this, but this is kind of what he said. I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. But then he said, I like this. And I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. And he said, someday I hope you get a chance to live like you were dying. I would change his song a little bit if I could write a country song. And I wouldn't call it live like you were dying, but rather live like Jesus is coming. Live like Jesus is coming. Because we know what time it is. He's coming. And we know what he asks us to do. Love him and love fellow human beings. That's the debt we owe. Live like Jesus is coming. But until he does come, he told us what to do. One of the things he told us to do, he said, you do this until I come back again. I want you to remember my death for you.